0: understand the numbers, understand the returns that we're looking for, the levers that can be pulled, make sure we're getting the profit and the operation out of the projects that we're looking for. All of that can go so far with risk mitigation. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome back to The Surgeon Syndicate. We are here today with the second half of our conversation with Amy Silvas of Silvas Capital. If you missed the first half of this conversation, please go back and listen to it. It's a very inspirational story and very much worth your time listening to. So welcome back, Amy.
0: Thank you. Such a delight to be here again.
1: So when we finished our last part, we were discussing some of the questions doctors have and their concerns that maybe keep them from investing. And you had mentioned that one of the questions was, what is their liability? And that was one of the first ones when I looked to bring uh one of my colleagues into a retail strip center deal with one of my associates and the deal was in Milwaukee. And right at the time there had been some little bit of a crime spree in parts of Milwaukee. Yeah. And I still remember the guy we were doing the deal with when she asked and, you know, she said, so if somebody gets shot in the parking lot, how does that affect me? Yeah. And from the real estate side, it was like this, like what? Because as the property owner, you look at a lot of liability things where you think about your lighting, you think about snow removal, especially mm-hmm. in, maybe not in LA.
0: Milwaukee, for sure. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense.
1: And those things for people's safety. But it wasn't something that we had come across before. It was such a doctor question like, okay, I'm looking at this worst case scenario.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. And so it really is one of those that if you've done your diligence to provide a safe experience and there's insurance for that so that was an interesting one my other favorite one was from somebody who they really only invested in the stock market Mm -hmm. and so they were used to you know you'd see okay you have a really good year you can do 12 to 15 percent. And then you have a bad year and you lose some money and it all. averages out over time in the stock market, and that's six to eight percent return. Right. And so we looked at, it and we didn't even go into there was some a land entitlement deal we had access to too. Nice. I hadn't even gone there yet because those are bigger, scarier returns. But we were just looking at a retail center, and when we talked about annualized returns of seventeen, eighteen percent, the next question was, "Is this legal? Are we gonna all go to jail? <laughs> <laughs> have you heard that that it sounds too good to be true?
0: Absolutely. Especially because I think I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but I think most of us myself included, have been trained that Wall Street is the way to go, right? That's just what people do. If you want to grow your wealth, you invest stocks, bonds, mutual funds. so, this real estate thing, how come I've never heard about it? It must be a scam. Or as you said, these returns seem nice. The tax benefits could be great. How come I haven't heard about it? So it was just, yeah, it really must just not be legitimate or there may be some secret that I'm not picking up on that could hurt me. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think that's interesting because before the internet, And especially before some of the changes that happened recently that made it easier to raise capital online and things like that, that these deals were really handshake and network. They were done at the country club. And if you weren't in that circle, you never really heard about it. You didn't see a section in the newspaper. Look at what this apartment building is worth and what it was and what it's returning. Or you had Coca-Cola there, but...
0: Right. Good point.
1: So what are some of the other concerns you've heard from docs?
0: Yes. Yeah, so I've definitely heard concerns about location. So I'm in Los Angeles. I get many of my investors from New York, from the coast, and also the West Coast. So Evansville, Indiana isn't necessarily on many people's radar, or Huntsville, Alabama sounds... Alabama, I don't know, whatever you want to assume about that area. So I think the education part about, okay, I live here. This property is going to be over there. I don't know the property manager per se, and I've never been there. And I'm not familiar with the geography or what may go on, and I may never visit the property myself. So how does all of that work? So really connecting the dots and helping physicians understand risk mitigation. And what goes into choosing an area, choosing a property manager and asset managing when we may not necessarily live in that specific area?
1: So let's go into that a little bit more in case somebody is new to this whole thing and they're listening and they're like, well, wait a minute, this all sounds crazy. Just kind of walk through how you find it, how you run it, what your role is versus some of the other roles in the sponsor or the general partnership, the people who
0: are running the deal. Yes, yes. So in terms of finding a property or on the acquisition side, we spend an inordinate amount of time doing market research because as we understand what's going to increase the value of our investment, well, it's going to be people renting. So what causes people to rent? It's net migration, household formation, job growth, income growth. We pay attention to all of these metrics very, very closely. And we identify what we call emerging markets throughout the United States. Because the secret is there is no one United States real estate market. Right, Los Angeles is not the same as Denver or Dallas or Huntsville, Alabama. All of these things trend differently. There are very, very different economic cycles and real estate cycles in these locations. So we choose these prime locations and our tagline is live where you want and invest where it makes sense. And a lot of my investors don't live in a place where it makes sense to invest. Hello, California. (laughs) So once we're able to identify the market, then yes, we reach out to either the property owners or brokers to find these great deals. We probably analyze and underwrite 200 deals, maybe 250, before we find the one that fits our criteria for what we're looking to buy, the returns, the risk profile, and all of those great things. And I'm one of those people, I think you alluded to this, Doctor, where this takes a whole bunch of people to make these properties, these investments work, right? Some folks work on the acquisition side. Some people work on operations. Other people connect investors to the deals. And we all work together to make these investments sing. I'm crazy enough to play all of those rules <laughs> in my deals. So I find properties, I underwrite them, I asset manage I help connect my investors to these great opportunities, but oftentimes you'll find several companies that form partnerships together because it is a complex thing to run a real estate investment. Did I go off on a tangent?
1: No, no. no? That's okay. Good. All right. That was exactly just having some explanation of how this whole process worked. Cause yeah. that was one of my bigger concerns. When I did my first limited partnership or passive investment, I was like, well, wait, these guys are based in new york city but the property is in texas right and how are they doing this how does this work and so you have the asset manager who's overseeing putting the whole thing together but then a property manager so the property manager is then the person who is there where the complex is doing the rentals doing all that How do you identify those property
0: managers? I love that question. And yes, to answer a question you didn't ask, another question I get from physicians is why multifamily? We specialize in multifamily versus me just getting a single family or duplex rental. It's this economies of scale aspect of these larger commercial deals where we can find these institutional quality, very sophisticated property managers That are able to make the deal work, that can get us the returns we want, in our case, really treat our residents exceptionally well. So we know we're also doing good while making money. So yes, we have relationships with several national property management companies that we've had years of working relationships with. They understand how we work, we understand how they work, and we come together to implement our business plans. And then one of our business partners is actually vertically integrated where they own the construction company and the property management company in-house. And that gives them some scale and extra abilities there as well. But they all are all boots on the ground, like you mentioned.
1: So that scale is an important thing because a lot of us, and hopefully people listening to this, we're helping you jump past the learning curve. because I started out, you know, we had a house we moved out of, and we rented it It was a total disaster. The first time they never paid rent, I was driving eight hours to get them evicted, said, I'll never do this again. Um, Then 20 years later, 15 years later, um, we were actually looking for a second home. And I said, you know what, I would love to have this pay for itself. And found a fourplex for not a whole lot more and decided to dive back into this whole thing and it was really fun actually in the beginning you know i was doing a bunch of the work on my time off and i was learning because i was figuring out how to screen tenants and all this stuff and that was really cool for about nine months and then it was like okay so now we're going to buy another one and we're going to buy another one and i hear this story over and over again where then you start going, okay, how many do I need to buy and manage to replace my income? And it feels like a calculus problem that's going to infinity that you can't get there from here. And so you know, like, oh, we got a scale. So what if we do an eight plex or 15, and it's still tough, And you go, okay, 100. And there's some magical number there that 100 is a number I hear thrown around a lot where You can have two employees, one to manage leasing and one to manage maintenance. And now you've got 100 apartments paying rent versus two or three, but they're all in one place. There's your economy of scale. That's when you can start to have returns that change things that make a difference.
0: So perfectly said.
1: Is that one of those things that if a doc's just starting, because if they started their journey talking to you, man, they missed a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) Because I love your LinkedIn talks about avoiding, is it tenants, toilets?
0: Termites and and trash, yeah.
1: Trash. (laughs) All those things can be really tough. And if they've come straight to somebody to guide them into the world of scale, into real commercial investing versus buying a duplex. And there's nothing wrong with buying a duplex. if That's what people want to do. And a lot of people do great with that. And if you start early, you can accumulate enough to build a nice little cash flow, but it's a lot harder to change your life, especially if you're already making a doctor wage.
0: I love that you say that. I'm jumping out of my shoes here because about half of the doctors I talk to do have that small, either single family or some small multifamily experience where, yeah, they've, Amy, I didn't want to create another job for myself. I thought this is my path to financial freedom. I'm working harder than I ever have. What am I supposed to do? And I really tell folks it really depends on your time, how much time you have to dedicate to this, and what your goals are. And to your point, for some people, the hands-on management, the close proximity, the smaller scale, it works for them, and that's fine. But I hear a lot of people that say, "I got my hands dirty. <laughs> that's fine, but I need to graduate to this next level and understand what else is out there. so i can spend time with my family or travel or give back to the community and not spend all my free time just managing these properties that were supposed to be passive give me passive income
1: and there is are you an active investor or a passive investor if you want passive income somebody else needs to be running it for you and that's a big step there so i'm just looking again back at your bio And you talk about a foundation built upon rigorous analysis, risk assessment, and a deep appreciation of emerging trends, consistently identify opportunities that deliver exceptional returns. So you talked a little bit about your analysis and how many deals you go through. Risk assessment, that hits home with doctors, because we tend to be risk averse and see all the bad things that could happen to us and ruin our careers. So what is the risk assessment? What are the things you're looking at that you're accounting for so that the passive investor doesn't have to worry about risk?
0: Yes. And I'm so aligned with that as well. As you can imagine, growing up with a fatal illness, I'm a little risk averse too. So I'm not trying to introduce (laughs) undue risk either. So I'm pretty conservative. So we're aligned there, which makes for a great partnership. I mentioned markets. I think this is the first way we mitigate risk because- we see, as we saw in Los Angeles, there are things like rent control, eviction moratoriums. I'm not trying to take some sort of political stance. I understand the reason behind these things. Unfortunately, as an investor, they can have some really tough unintended consequences. So when we pick markets, understanding, you know, hey, is someone going to be able to live in our apartment unit for 12 months and not pay rent and put some undue strain on our investors and their returns and maybe also fellow tenants in the area. That's a huge measure of risk mitigation, in my opinion, is making sure we're in the right markets where laws are fair. We're not trying to evict grandma after she didn't pay for a week. Let me tell you, we had a resident in Tennessee, an elderly woman that was in the hospital with COVID. Her caregiver took her debit card to pick up medication from the pharmacy and drained her entire bank account. What are you gonna do? I know, it's horrible. We ended up as owners coming out of pocket and making good on her rent for herself for three months that was back due. We don't want to be unfair to some of the most vulnerable in society, right? That's not what we're about. But at the same time, we have to strike that balance of still being able to give our investors, these great doctors who work so hard for their money, the returns they need as well. So that's my little rant about state and local laws, but we've lived this. It's very important. Then at the property level, Again, understanding economies of scale. If we buy a 100-unit property and we have one person that isn't occupying a unit, so we've got 1% vacancy, that's very different than one person not occupying a single-family home, right? That's a lot of risk mitigation through the economies of scale. We can still pay our mortgage, our taxes, our insurance with 1% vacancy. It's going to be harder if we've got 100% vacancy with just a single family. Then we look at things like break-even analysis going on this trajectory of, hey, worst case scenario, I love to plan these things myself too. How much vacancy can we have and still be able to afford to pay our mandatory expenses, pay our debt, pay our insurance, pay our taxes to keep the property still in our hands and not have to, God forbid, turn it back over to the lender. So a break-even occupancy of 65 70% That's good stuff, in my opinion, in my investor's opinion of, gosh, we can have 30% of these units not occupied and still be able to keep this thing running. That is a completely unlikely scenario, but not zero. I mean, we're honest. We got to be honest about what could possibly happen. But in the very unlikely event, we even get close to that, we are still keeping things going. So understanding metrics like that, where we can plan for the worst and make sure that we're still gonna be safe in a catastrophic scenario like that. By the way, we didn't even get that low during COVID. So things really have to be going poorly. No, but it's a perspective, right? Yep. And then also, yeah, having property management that's sophisticated, that has this institutional quality experience where they can put on an asset manager's hat, which is different than a property manager, understand the numbers, understand the returns that we're looking for, the levers that can be pulled make sure we're getting the profit and the operation out of the projects that we're looking for. All of that can go so far with risk mitigation. I could go on and on, but I know we got a time limit, but those are the, some of the things that we look at.
1: No, that's great. And when you talked about the location, that not just a place where the laws are fair for the landlord, but in the markets, you were talking about that the in-migration people are moving there. I mean, when you look at places like Florida and Texas, if people don't realize people are moving to Florida and Texas, they haven't been paying attention to anything <laughs> in the world. Yeah, The number of people who would have to, I mean, it's almost would be like a tidal wave changing direction of, right now it's a tidal wave moving in and to have it move back out and go the other direction and the time that would take the safety that is afforded you in those markets, but now it takes more work to find the deal because it's a great place to invest.
0: Yes. And other people know that too.
1: (laughs) You're not alone. So what are some of the things now that you look for besides Texas and Florida, since we mentioned them, what are some of the other markets and the things that are driving that you say, yes, this is a good market to be in?
0: So job growth and business friendly states, Indiana, I've been saying this on podcasts for about two years. I still don't think the word has gotten out, but I'll say it here as well. <laughs> it's a great, unsexy market. I think by most people's, um, criteria, but it's sexy to me because it's extremely landlord friendly. Property taxes go down for most of our properties every year. If you can believe that they just have a nation or a statewide kind of cap. There's great net migration in some cities, not the whole state in some cities. Very job-friendly, great job growth. Income growth is very positive as well. And I think I mentioned landlord-friendly, but yeah, it gives us really the opportunity to work with our residents. And the residents know that they're going to sign a lease, it's their responsibility to pay. We've just had an incredibly great experience in that state. And the fact that cost of living isn't exorbitantly high, like we're seeing in some of the very popular Nashville markets or other markets like Austin in the South and the Southeast, where a bunch of people have migrated and it's become expensive, people still feel like they can have a great quality of life and a low cost of living in a state like Indiana. So we're always analyzing all of those metrics. And as you said, some things do change, but real estate is slower to change. And so is demographics, unless you have the great migration of COVID in 2020 and 2021. But yeah, we're always keeping our pulse on these markets to make sure we're continuing to buy and operate in healthy markets like Indiana.
1: Well, it's great to hear the call out for the Midwest. I'm in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And to look at economic upturns and downturns in Green Bay, because really the Green Bay economy is mostly based on the paper industry, toilet paper, paper towels, and cardboard boxes. Huh. So The great boom in Green Bay kind of goes, we're going up. And then the down is, oh, 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 we're going down a little bit. It doesn't take these great swings. And recently there was a magazine, and I should look back, I should know this, but they rated Green Bay as the best place in the country to live because of wages compared to cost of living. So there is a ton of industrial work Mm -hmm. and great blue-collar jobs, and the cost of living is low. And that's kind of the secret of the Midwest that seems like it's starting to get out right now. And maybe because it always seems like during high times, there's fancy, cool places where everybody wants to go. And when the economy maybe shifts, the Midwest is safe. And a lot of my network is in Ohio and in the Cincinnati area. And that sounds like that area is just going crazy. There's a new big Intel plant and a lot of great things happening in the Midwest. We yeah, I'm excited to talking. hear
0: that too. Oh, we sorry. Stop
1: talking about it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, my my secret. USC Trojans are joining the Big Ten next year. So I'm excited to get to know a lot more cities in the Midwest as I travel <laughs> with the team. A <laughs> little two uh, for there. A little uh, college football plus real estate investing. Yeah. Never hurt anybody.
1: <laughs> the college football thing is funny because we just went and visited my daughters at the University of Utah. Oh, nice. And I went to the University of Colorado. But when I was there, Colorado was in the Big Eight and Utah was in the WAC. There was no rivalry at all. They didn't play each other, they were on different planets. Now it's a neighbor rivalry since they've both been in the Pac 12, which, as you said, next year is kind of going away.
0: (laughs) The (laughs) Tupac, there's only two left.
1: (laughs) I know. It's such a crazy thing. But we were seeing my wife's family, her cousin lives there, and their daughter, goes to school in georgia and she's has not a, been a football fan at all but how we react as parents that we well, watching the georgia football game on tv she's actually was like mom i'm right behind the goalpost so we spend the whole game oh. looking for her, and we saw her Oh, how goal. fun yes yeah, there's the touchdown she <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> did it intrinsically oh that's lovely So that's great
1: you jump in oh, on these things fun. and chase her out
0: yeah why not I think we're going to visit coach prime this weekend as well so we'll be playing your buffs i think on saturday
1: oh awesome yeah that's an interesting story there in colorado (laughs) we'll see how it all turns out yeah it's definitely drummed up some excitement
0: that's it that's it (laughs) how fun
1: that's fun all right so we've talked about a lot of great stuff here and before we wrap up are there any final pearls if there's docs out there who are thinking about this and they're like, oh, I don't know, or who should I call, or what should I do, that you could tell them or give a pathway to enter this amazing world in a way that they can feel like they did it right and feel confident?
0: What a great question. I think above and beyond the obvious of great podcasts like yours, there are books, the Educational Foundation, which I know doctors are very familiar with and will do without my advice. There are people such as myself on LinkedIn that post daily these educational nuggets where you can really take your time, get familiar, go into the comments, see what people are saying and take it at your pace to where you'll feel comfortable because you have that firm educational foundation and then find people to invest in that are fine with spending time building a relationship and answering your questions. This is probably the most California thing I'll say on this podcast, but. To trust your gut, because I do think my investors, my doctors that invest with me get a feeling finally where they're, where they've gotten enough education. They've built a relationship. They've been able to get their questions answered (sighs) where their shoulders kind of drop and they are able to breathe a sigh of relief of, okay, you know, I think I understand. Obviously, no risk can be completely mitigated, but where your education and your relationships and your research can overcome a lot of the perceived risk where you feel comfortable building your legacy and buying back your time. That would be my advice.
1: Awesome. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been wonderful. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
0: Sure. So like I mentioned, I'm on LinkedIn and very active. So you can always message me there. And then my website, sylviscapital.com should be very easy to reach me there as well.
1: All right. And we'll have all that in the show notes. So again, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. This is fantastic. Thank you.
1: This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better. So I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.